Marnie Frey was murdered sometime after August 30th, 1997, by Canada's notorious serial killer Robert Picton, and this is her mother and father's story. Hello. Hi, it's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Oh, hi, Kelly. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Hello. Hi, Rick. It's Kelly from Morning the Murdered. How are you? Oh, fine. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good, thank you. Thanks for taking time to speak with me. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Hey, everyone. Before we start this week's episode, I just wanted to let you all know that we're having a promo on our podcast. If you record a short message on your phone about the podcast and email it to us, you may hear your recording at the end of one of our future episodes. Email us at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. This is part three in the murder of Marnie Frey. Please go back and listen to episode seven, part one, and episode eight, part two, to hear the whole story. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. Now, let's continue with the conclusion to the murder of Marnie Frey. The list of things that went wrong for the Frey family is catastrophic. Right from the start, when her family reported Marnie missing and the police didn't care, treating her like she was less than, making the family wait four months until the police finally and very reluctantly file a missing persons report and a full year before it was actually reported in Vancouver City. A full year from not knowing what happened to their daughter for five years, waiting and wondering and praying for a miracle that she was still alive and would turn up, but knowing in their hearts this wasn't the case. From hearing that Marnie was murdered to hearing the god-awful details of what happened to her. Things that nightmares are made of. From the bungling of the police investigation right down to the struggles they went through to how the remains were returned to them. Marnie's remains. Brittany's mother's remains. Lynn and Rick's daughter's remains. Let us not forget that. The way this family had to try and get back the urn with what they hope is their daughter and how they found out her bones were treated by the coroner makes my heart feel such sorrow, such a depth of empathy for the family, as though this horror is endless for the Frey family. You didn't really get a body even though they called it a body. We just did, we did. We didn't. Owen Court, the coroner service there, he's the regional coroner from Vancouver, he phones me, and I was out fishing, and he phones me and says, well, are you coming down to pick the cremations up? So what are you talking about? 
he says, well, I had uh, Marnie's remains cremated. Well, uh, excuse me for one, you have not got uh, written permission from us, and we didn't tell you to do it, which is against the law. And uh, then he started to get pushy with him. Well, you got to come and get it, or, you know, uh, your ex-wife is... Uh, but once uh, the remains, uh, but I could, I could cut them up and, and send her half and you half. What the hell are you talking about? And that's when I got choked because my told me, "Look here, you asshole! If you do anything like that, I'll be down there, and there's going to be another slab on the table, and it's going to be you." Oh, you can't talk to me like that. I said, "Well, I just did." And finally, when we did go down, and oh, he was nice as pie to me. Eh? Oh. I'm about a foot taller than him anyway. So <laughs> anyway, I, I. Uh, uh, you know, he brings out this urn. Well, I, I'm taken back. You know, here's my daughter in an urn. I mean, what do you do? And it's very, very emotional. So we're we're sitting there, and Lynn says to him, he says, well, where's the, um, where's the coin? This coin is a stainless steel disc stamped with the deceased cremation number. This is the number that is assigned to each and every deceased person that is cremated. This coin remains with the deceased throughout the entire time at the cremation facility. So anyway, we, we took the urn and we went back to our hotel and then there was some friends of ours were there waiting for us and producer of another show there. And um, so we're sitting there and, and they had looked at the urn and a couple of them kind of looked at it iron it and that and they, something's wrong you know there's, it rattles well creme, you know cremations don't rattle so Lynn says well, I, I'm going to take them to the funeral room and see what's wrong and see if they something's loose or whatever so she took them there and they said they're going to check well they checked it and it got back to Lynn and says Lynn went over there and it doesn't look like these these uh, cremations have been cremated it doesn't look like they mean, you know, processed properly. What? So can we check it out further and can it go to the uh, guy in the hospital, pathologist? And yeah, by all means, we got to find out. So it uh, went there, and then by this time, we're into the inquiry, Nopal's inquiry, and we're in Vancouver, and we get the call there. They're, they're not, doesn't look like they're being properly uh, processed. Uh, can we ch- uh, send them to Victoria? Well, yeah, by all means. So they went to Victoria, same thing come back and she says we got one more fella to ask and it's a Dr. Mark Skinner I believe it is and I think he's in Calgary now and he's a forensic anthropologist and uh, they went there. Well it so happens that he was the very fella that Peter Ritchie who was Picton's lawyer had hired to check all the remains of the evidence in there if they were indeed human and he said yes I know these very well I did it and I have all the notes on it. So he uh, checked it, and he says, and he was really naughty. He says, no, he says, there has not been one degree of heat put to these remains, to these bones, he said. And it appears what they've done is they've taken these bones, put them on the table, and smashed them with a hammer so they'd fit in the urn, <gasps> and called them cremations. That's <sighs> five years in jail. So, you know, what do we do now? You know, we're just, we're just kind of normal people, I hope. And, and what, what the hell do we do? So they said, well, get a hold of the um, uh, consumer protection, that, because that's who the, um, the coroner service and that. So we went through the process with the consumer protection. Well, 
uh, Eileen Dirch is her name. She did an excellent report. It took a long, long, long time because she was she was very thorough, doing an excellent job. And it came back, and these guys were blasted. They got fined for what they did, and they can't make charges, but they can charge them, fine them for doing the wrong procedures. Well, this time the cops came up. Murray Power from the Langley RCMP, but he came up with his two uh, detectives, and they. They checked, you know, talked to us about the story, and then they went to the funeral home to check the the remains, the so-called cremations. And Sandy, who was the funeral director, she put them all on the table and examined them. And no, they had, they know they hadn't been done because they're told from three different sources that they were not cremated. So actually, Marnie sat in the funeral home for, well, I, I'm well, 2010 is when we got them. So basically, for till now. It's so horrible how you've been treated through this whole thing. Yep. First, they don't even take the time to search for her right up until nope. the end when they're hitting her bones with a hammer and telling you she was yep. cremated. It breaks my yep. heart to hear and, that and you had you know to go the, through you know that. You know the bad thing about it? It's at the same time that they were doing Marnie's remains, there was, I think there was nine others from the same victims that victims there that went to this Lawrence Little. I asked her to be cremated in Campbell River where she was born, not in Vancouver. Well, we could place her in the mail and we could deliver it to you. You can go to hell, I said. I am not having her in the mail. So I'll come and get her. So Rick and I went to Vancouver and picked her up. And why do you think they did that? I mean, what possible motivation could they have to lie about that? Because they screwed up, and they didn't want everybody to know that they screwed up, so they just lied to me. Oh. And said that they had a cre- they lied to everybody and said that she was cremated, and she was never cremated. None of the kids were cre- women were cremated. That really like hurt my heart to hear that. That yep. not only did you have to fight all of the stuff you had to fight through, but then they treat her remains with such disrespect by hammering her. I- I can't even tell you how, how I, I'm so saddened for what you have lived through. Yeah, how, how do you like that story? That's not a very nice one, is it? No, I can't. I mean, the whole story is horrible, but <laughs> you would hope that at the end, at least when you knew she had been murdered by this psycho and that you yeah. were finally getting her remains back, that at least then you would have, you know, something other than this... I, I'm speechless. I don't even know what to say. It's so terrible. But for them to yeah. continue on with all of this nonsense, it's like, what, yeah. were they, what were they doing? I hope you feel as anguished as I do by that. So heavy-hearted. No charges were finally laid and everyone just got off. How is it that someone's remains can be treated this way and not have charges filed against them? This is beyond anything that should be deemed as acceptable. If it was my family member, or yours, or anyone's, they would be livid as they should be. But for some mysterious reason, the phrase aren't supposed to be. They are just supposed to sit back and accept it. You know, don't tell me not. that this isn't the way you do it. I'm sorry about that, but let's move on. No, mm-hmm. you're responsible. Yes. You know, Lisa LaPointe, she took her position as the chief coroner, and that that was her job. Well, I'm sorry, lady, that's what you get paid to do. You should look after your loose cannons on deck, get rid of them, or 
you know, I wasn't mad, too mad at him when they cremated, said they cremated Marnie. If they would have done that, it might have been fine. But to not cremate her, lie to me, smash her body oh. is what it is with a hammer to fit an urn and yes. lie to us. I know. That's a, no. inexcusable. They need to be held accountable. They need yep. to be. And, and the only person that's going to make that happen is you or the other victim's family members. And, yep. It's, yep. and it's unfortunate. And why should you have to fight and claw and fight every yep. step of the way? Can't they just for once do the right thing? Can't they just do that? I never like to... I don't like suing people. I don't think that's not... I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just a bad taste in your mouth. But yes. these people have to pay. How are they going to pay? Unless you sue them. They're not going to. Exactly. That's the problem. Exactly. Nothing happens. They get charged. It gets put under the rug. Everyone forgets about it and yep. says, oh, well, you know, let's just make sure that we don't talk about it anymore and maybe it'll go away. Thank goodness the phrase are fighters. And they are not people to just let their daughter be walked all over and treated so devastatingly. So at every single turn, Marnie was treated as less than. Over and over and over again, even at death. What amazes me is how no one is being held accountable criminally for this. The whole case, from start to finish, is shameful and poor Marnie couldn't even have peace in death. Nor could her family. Word of mouth is such a powerful tool. So please help us to reach as many listeners as possible and tell a friend and let them know that we can be found on their favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our Facebook group Morning the Murdered. I want to send a big thank you out there to all of our supporters. You can donate to the Morning the Murdered podcast through Patreon or PayPal at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thanks so much for your generosity. And now, back to the show. It is so nice to learn more about Marnie. Not the girl that was murdered, but just the girl. Her family is so lovely. So I can only imagine how lovely Marnie was as well. So tell me, do you have any little story that you'd like to talk about, Marnie, when she was a youngster or when she was born or anything? Well, i got lots of those. Okay, well, share away. <laughs> Give uh, us a few. Uh, well, she was just a, a bubbly, bubbly little girl. You know, she's uh, very outdoorsy. She wasn't, uh, she wasn't a little uh, girly girly. She was more of a, uh, maybe a tomboy. You know, and she likes to, she always liked to go and do things with me and, uh, you know, hunting, hunting fish and stuff like that. Uh, cut wood, all oh. that kind of stuff. They're very good with animals, too. That's nice. And did you have a lot of animals for her to play with? Uh, yeah, we had rabbits, we had chickens, and uh, we tried some turkeys. They were a little tougher and had the odd little goose around. and You know, just a normal little stuff there. It wasn't anything, you know, exotic or anything. But she enjoyed spending time with them. 
Oh, for sure, for sure. And she was good. You know what? It, it's like the old thing to say about animals. They they can pick up on people. I don't know if it's a scent or if it's just how they act or whatever, but uh, uh, she had a way with them. They would go to her to uh, always be good with her, and you know, and, and uh, you know, some animals, they rear away from people, but uh, not with her. She, they always seem to be so... So, so good with her and kind of trusted her. So I don't know, like it's that sixth sense, I guess, or whatever it is. Yeah, they can sense that she's a gentle, kind, loving girl that's not going to hurt uh, them, yeah. or you know. So no, oh, that- no, and that that was her in her, in, in life too. And, and when that uh, in her eulogy, the mayor was Campbell River was a uh, was a really close friend of mine. We grew up together, and I you know I signed his papers when he ran for mayor. But anyway, he. Uh, he did the eulogy at a remembrance that we had for her, and one of the things that we had to laugh about because you have to, you know, put some kind of funny things in there too. And, and one of the things was uh, uh, we had uh, the chickens, of course, and uh, this chicken died. Well, okay, fine, the chicken died. You know, they, they do it all the time. So I said, "Well, I'll go and dig a hole and put it in." Oh no, 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 we got to find out what happened to the chicken. <laughs> I said, well, it, it died, dear. It, you know, it's just the way it is. No, we got to find out. we got to, you know. Uh... Okay, so I, I took the chicken to the vet. Well, I mean, I guess they, they weren't overly shocked, I guess. But anyway, I said, my daughter has to know what happened to the chicken. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah oh, okay, we'll, we'll check. So I left the chicken with them, and, and uh, they phoned me. I come back, I don't dare so later. And well, here's what happened to the chicken. And I guess in its uh, gullet was a caught. There was a, I think there was a couple pennies and, and a, like a little screw and whatever was jammed in there. And I guess it probably choked to death or whatever. But you know, that's where the autopsy comes back. Your chicken died of a, a screw and some pennies in his throat. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> so, we, so the, you know, the old mayor said that at the old. Uh, eulogy there and everybody had to laugh of course but that was the kind of person she was she genuinely really cared about people and that was probably a lot of her downfall was that she was too trusting and, and too giving and yeah that's you know that's a bad thing about it and what was she like as a baby oh awesome happy never cried happy baby oh isn't, really happy isn't that lovely yep yeah, she was full of piddle and vinegar <laughs> like she, she, you know, she was hardly ever sick. She, she loved people. She loved life from day one. Oh, and as she grew as a young child, what was she like? Do you have any stories you'd like to share with us about her childhood? Uh, yeah, a really good story is um, Marnie would go to school with the uh, Nike runners, for an example, or and a nice pair of top, a nice top and pants. I mean, she was dressed accordingly. She wasn't um, looking like a little orphan or anything, and I uh, made sure the kids were dressed properly. And when she'd come home, she'd come home with different shoes. <laughs> like, well, where's where's your other shoes, Marnie? She goes, well, Mary never had any shoes, and her parents can't afford them, so I gave her mine. Oh. I said, well, what did you wear home? She said, I wore hers. Oh, great! Yeah, they were holy runners, you know, like just the basic runners, not anything spectacular. But she wanted to make sure well, she felt bad for her friend because they didn't have the money to buy her uptown shoes, like the checkmark or Adidas or whatever it was in those days. So, so she, she felt bad for her, so she 
and it's the same with tops. If she had a pair, you know, she'd always wear take, and I never could figure out why she'd take an outfit to school plus what she was wearing. But later on in life, I figured it out. It took a while, but I figured out she was giving her clothes away because never needed them. Oh, so like who she did, was. Who, if someone said, "I really like that top. I wish my mom could buy me one like that." Oh, you can have mine. Okay, my mom will buy me another one. So you know, she'd come home with different clothes that didn't even belong to her, or her extra clothes that she'd bring, you know, for to school. So she was always a caring, a caring, loving child. I mean, to know that drug addiction got the best of her, and then that street life that she lived is really sad. Like it was sad to lose her to begin with, but it's even extra sad because Manya was never like that. She was always a happy, caring person. She wasn't a a bum or didn't care about her appearance. Her appearance was number one. She always had to have top line clothes and her hair had to be just right. And she was always that way. Happy though. Not, you know, didn't whine. She was a good kid. All in all, she was a really good kid and a, a good adult until she got mixed up with the wrong group of people, ended up doing drugs. And that took her to the downtown east side of Vancouver. Half a day that you're traveling to get to Vancouver from here. So, of course, the street life in that Campbell River, is, there is no real street life. I mean, it's not as active. I mean, we're not all dead people here, but there's a lot of, you know, the streets don't have as much action as they do at nighttime in the big city. As they do in the big city, the big city's full of all kinds of stuff going on. Yes. But not down sure. here. Not up here. They have, you know, it's not quite as active in the little community as it is in the big city. So she went to the big city with her girlfriend, ended up, you know, she's already drug addicted when she left, went to treatment a couple of times, it didn't work for her, she wasn't ready, and then she ended up going to that damn farm, because it was her birthday present, or they were going to have a birthday party for her there, is what she told me the day before, that she was going there to have her birthday at this farm. She didn't say it was a pig farm, she just told me it was a farm, because she phoned home all the time, because we had Brittany which is her daughter. And then when Brittany became old enough to understand, which she really didn't really understand all that much, uh, it was just not that long ago that we, she was told when we were, before we went to court, that she was, her birth mother was Marnie. When Marnie first went missing, she was told of that. And we asked the doctors, like, you know, when's the proper age to tell Brittany that I'm not really her mom, I'm her grandma. And he said, you don't, there is no certain age to tell a child that, but it'll happen and, you'll figure it out and it'll be the time you tell her so we told her he said just don't lie to her if she comes and asks you are you my real mom then that's your point that's your clue right there to tell her the truth and she never did ask me that so I just carried on and then I guess she was in grade 6 maybe grade 6 I think she was 11 I think and she asked is it really true that you're really not my mom you're my grandma so I sat her down and explained the whole thing and she was fine with it after we, I was having a, a fit because I didn't know how she was going to react. Brittany was a tough girl. And then she, even to this day, when she sees us, like she's coming here again in July, um, and if somebody says, oh, is that your grandma? She'll say, no, that's my mother. And nobody grew up one day saying, when I hit to be 24, I'm going to get killed by a serial killer or I'm going to become a drug addict. That's the least thing that I ever thought that would ever happen, ever. Never in a million years I thought she'd have a problem with drug addiction. I didn't even know anything about drug addiction, actually. I learned it all after the fact. I didn't know that it's as bad as it is. I mean, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know it was quite that bad. 
Yeah, and here's your beautiful daughter who, as you're saying, is such a lovely young girl and just meets that wrong person and gets the drugs that just take over their entire lives. I'm, and yeah, and you, can't, and you can't stop. It's like, how did she word it one time to me? She said, Mom, it's like when you're really thirsty and you get a glass of water and you've got to have that water, otherwise you feel like you're going to choke to death. It's the same if I don't get my next fix. I'm, just, I'm sick. I'm vomiting. I've got diarrhea. I've got the shakes. I'm curling up in a ball like an old person. I don't want that way. I want my high. I need to get high. I can't handle that pain. So every muscle in your body aches like a real bad flu bug. So they take more drugs to get that feeling and then they pop back up and they're bebopping around again and they're doing fine. And then the next thing happens again and 12 hours later, they've got to go get more. So realistically, how, how does a woman, unless you're able to work fashionably and still use drugs, like on a methadone program or something, how else does a woman get money? fast right. to fix her habits. Marty didn't like what she did. I asked her, so how do you even do that? She goes, you close your eyes, mom, and you just do it because you know you're going to get 50 bucks and you're going to go feel better. If someone is a drug addict, they automatically assume that they're horrible people, that, oh, it couldn't happen to me. It couldn't happen if they had, you mm -hmm. know, a better family role model school. Who knows what they think? It can happen well, yeah. to anybody. It happens to anybody. Yep. Yes. I know a doctor. I know a RCMP officer in Cavalier that their daughter struggles for addiction. I know uh, a lawyer here. I know somebody that works in the court system that was an addict and now on methadone, has been on methadone for 22 years and can't get off of it. Otherwise, she's afraid she'll turn to a drug. Wow. And that's 22 years of doing methadone, wow. just to keep her stable. So on saying that, you know, like my hat goes off to those kind of people too because they did everything they can, and, they, and as me, we did everything we can. And I used to be really, I used to feel really bad because I wasn't there when she died because I'm a caregiver and her mom, of course, but I look after dying people all day long, people who are getting ready to pass away. They're elderly, but still some are 60. Right. 50 and I look after them with dementia or Parkinson's and I stay with them till the bitter end I even clean the body up when they're done before the funeral home comes to get them and I think you know I feel guilty because I wasn't there to clean up Marnie or look after Marnie or take her with me when she was gone but there was nothing left of her so I couldn't have done that and it took me up until just recently to figure that out like when we got Marnie it was all bits and pieces it wasn't a whole body so I would have never been able to look after her, ever. And she probably would have never come with me. Like, I held that against me. Like, I should have got her and brought her home. But she wouldn't come home. She wanted to go to treatment. We put her in treatment five, six, seven times. And she only stayed there a couple hours one time. And she was on the highway hitchhiking before I could even turn around the corner after I dropped her off. She was on the highway hitchhiking back to Campbell River. And it was in Victoria. And I drove for five hours to get her to treatment, got her a bed, everything. I went in the front door, she went in the front door, I, I went out the front door, got into my car and turned around, I had a cry first because she was there, turned around and went to go on the highway and there's this chick hitchhiking. I thought, oh, to myself, then my mother-in-law, wouldn't it be funny if that was Marnie? Sure enough, when I got close enough, it was her. She went in one door and out the other. She didn't want to be there. She was only going because I wanted her to go to treatment. She wasn't going for herself. And that's the same thing that happened to Brittany. You have to want to go. You have to want, you've had enough. You can't take it anymore. You need life change and you finally make that choice. It's a hard choice. It's a hard, hard thing to do is to stop the addiction because the addiction overpowers you. 
And when did you actually first find out, well, I guess this is a two-part question. First of all, that they started actually finding bodies on the farm. And secondly, when you knew that Marnie was one of the victims. Um, 2002 is when when, um, he was arrested. And that's when they found bodies. And we didn't know about Marnie until 2004, that her actual remains were on the farm. They didn't think that she was there because... We were really lucky that Marnie, that we even got, um, Marnie got found because there were so little fragments of her. There wasn't a body. They classified it as a body, but there were just bones, chips, like her teeth, her left mandible, her right mandible, not all of her whole body. Mm. Like, and some of them had their heads cut off, and they found them in buckets. Do you remember when you found out that Marnie had in fact been murdered? Roughly, like, you know, we we always had the, we always thought she was, you know, everything led to it and whatever, and then uh, it was that that day when uh, we're all, there's a couple of us sitting around, I guess, in the house there, and we, we knew that the uh, police were going to be coming, you know, or, yeah, no, we didn't either. I, I'm not sure if we did, but Anyway, Brittany kept looking out the window, and, and it was nighttime. I said, and I told Brittany, quit, quit opening up the window. They don't look out there at night. There are some people looking in. You know, somebody's going to be looking back at you, and, you know, whatever she is. Dad, there's somebody coming up there. Okay, so I, I looked out the window, and I seen, uh, that's when I seen Don Adams, who's the head of the Michigan Women's uh, Unit there, and uh, a couple of the um, victim services people. So, you know, of course you're going to get a lump in your throat because you know, oh, this is it. Because Don always told me, he said, Rick, if anything, we find out anything and, and if anything has to be told that we do find something, I'll be coming up personally, which I thought was pretty super of him. That's when we found out is, you know, that day, and which was really took us back. We all hope against all hopes that they're, they're going to finally show up. It's they're missing, they're, they're going to come home, but when we'd seen her, him, him at the door with the uh, uh, victim services people there, that we knew that, you know, it was it was over. It, it was very, very hard, you know. It just, it was just one of those things that you just, you can't believe, but you got to, like, you know, you'll never, ever see her again. And how did you like a, deal with it? What did you do? I mean, how, I can't even imagine what you went through. That's, well... I don't know. It, it, it took, you know, it took so long, and you know, we're I think we're fairly strong people, forward people, honest people, and we just uh, uh, started, you know, asking the question. Of course, you know, when you talk to the police, and, and hopefully you're on a better rapport with them. I am. I, I'm on a good rapport with them, but I, I'm, I'm certainly not going to trust them because they, too many things has happened where I, I can't trust what they say. Well, the way they that. handled this case, I mean, come on, how can you possibly have faith in them after what they put you through? Oh, exactly. And like, you know, right away, because we knew, like, Marnie always always phoned us every day, just about, eh? So, okay, we know that. So when it was her birthday, you know, Lynn says, okay, we're going to send you some stuff down. She had some bacon, some clothes and stuff, and but she didn't tell me she was sending some money down. I don't know what I'd say anyway. Go ahead on it. But it was coming down to her and uh, phone us when you get it. Well, the call never came the next day. And God, that's unusual. She's always phoning. Then it didn't come, didn't come. Now now we're really worried. 
because that's not her, especially if she receives something. So that's when we went to the cops and told that, you know, she's missing. Oh, well, you can't put her out, you know, missing for X amount of time, and, and you know, she's an adult, and, you know, all the bullshit they fed you at that time. That was the uh, September, end of her birthday was end of August, so in September, first week or so of September, that's when we started the actual something's going on. Well, the cops didn't do anything till I think it was just before Christmas that they said they got a hold of Vancouver police to put out as missing. Why they waited that long? Who knows? They'll give you any kind of a bullshit story, but so they didn't. And then we find out that the Vancouver City Police didn't put her out to missing till in August, like a whole year after she was missing. Seriously? So the whole, a whole year went by. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, oh, yeah. There are so many details in this case that just make you wonder how and why the situation at the farm with this non-profit foolishness is something that just boggles the mind. It's supposed to be a hobby farm. He says it's a hobby farm, so he doesn't pay regular taxes, right? It's a hobby farm, you, don't, you get less tax. Well, there's not a bloody animal on that farm. There's not a chicken on that farm, so how do you call that a hobby farm? There's no pigs, there's no cows, there's no chickens, there's no birds, there's nothing on that farm. So I was going to write the city of Coquitlam and ask them, how do you classify that as a farm? So... Where I live, a farm, a hobby farm, you've got to have at least an animal on the farm, not just a dog or a cat. You've got to have either chickens or a couple of sheep or goats or something. There's nothing there. And before, it was all just pigs because you had a pig farm. And still oh, to this you know. day, they're, they're getting tax write-offs for this? Yep. yep. They still don't pay for it. They still classify it as a hobby farm. But there's no animals there, so how the hell can it be a hobby farm? You've got to have an animal. I have no an idea. To have a hobby farm. Of course you they, do. There were two parts to that farm, Piggy Palace and the farm. And Piggy Palace was the part that his brother ran. And you know the city councillors and the RCMP and the Vancouver City Police used to have fundraisers on that farm. They knew what the hell was going on there many, many years before they even arrested him. It's all a bosh. It's all bosh. And because, and because they just considered these women not as important, uh, you know, as you said, as a student, let's say, they just ignored yeah, it. And if figured they, were, they're if just... they were missing, like, say you or I went missing, mm -hmm. there'd be a whole different outlook. They were addicted women. They were throwaways. They didn't mean nothing to anybody. There's, there'll be another one out there. They're only prostitutes. Who gives a shit? They're all drug addicts. They don't know what they're doing. But they forgot to think that these people are human beings. And their blood flows through their veins the same as you and me. And how dare you just neglect them? They were human beings that were sick. Not any different than anybody else. Wow. He only got 25 years. And that's for all the women he killed. I don't even understand that. I read that and I am completely outraged by the fact that he got 25 years. I mean, they, yeah. but they can't possibly let him out at 25 years. It's impossible. Im impossible. They well, have to keep him in there. You would think so, but you know... <sighs> Justice is justice. He served 25 years, and that's what he got. So if he goes in front of an appeal board and requests to get out of jail because he's been there for 25 years, it's a possibility. Anything's possible. Wow. I have no doubt in my mind he's going to try. At a press conference, 
Deputy Chief Constable Doug Lepard of the Vancouver Police Department apologized to the victim's families, saying the following, I wish from the bottom of my heart that we would have caught him sooner. I wish that the several agencies involved that we could have done better in so many ways. I wish that all the mistakes that were made we could undo. And I wish that more lives would have been saved. So on my behalf, and behalf of the Vancouver Police Department, and all the men and women that worked on this investigation, I would say to the families how sorry we all are for your losses, and because we did not catch this monster sooner. Well, I'm glad they were forced to apologize. But sorry doesn't cut it, that's for sure. A huge miscarriage of justice was done. Families were reporting their loved ones missing, but the police chose to do nothing. They didn't listen to the families. They didn't care because of the lifestyle of the women. Everyone is fully aware of the dangerous choices that were being made, fueled by their serious addictions. But to not investigate, to not care, for shame. You know, you look and you say, what was the hardest part? What was the hardest part of this whole, whole ordeal? You go to the preliminary trial. That's to see if there's enough evidence to, you know, to get this guy into court. So you go to that. Yeah, that's not good. You hear lots of the gory evidence. You hear this, you hear that. So that wasn't good. You go to the trial, and then you start hearing more of it, and then all this stuff coming out, and that that is tough. But you know what the toughest was for me? What? Was the inquiry at the end of it, the Wally Opal inquiry, oh. to actually hear how many people screwed up, how many people didn't give a rat's ass about these people. Right. Hey, they're disposable. Hey, you know, like like you say, they're just um, people going nowhere anyway. Oh my goodness, that must you have know, hurt. And, and that that was that was the hardest because it's your daughter, and for yeah. them to be talking about they're they're speaking like that about your daughter that you love. Yeah. So how you know they're all oh. trying to all trying to cover their asses. The Vancouver City cops were the you know they were terrible. The RCMP were. There's something else, but the the city cops are bad. And like in in the inquiry, all the families are there, of course. And then there was a period where the family members they wanted them to go up and talk about what has happened, their experiences, and all of this. So of course our lawyers get one Linda go first, and Linda says, I don't want to go first now. Somebody else, and everybody, no, you go, Linda. No, I don't want to go. For, you know, finally. She agrees to go first. Well, the first thing is that nobody is supposed to question. They're just supposed to give their story, and that was it. She finally agreed to go up there. So she's up there telling her story about, you know, going down to the farm and, and uh, thought it was picked and all this other stuff and going on and on and on. And then uh, these two little Vancouver City uh, cop lawyers, just young ones, they, they get up there. Yes, well, uh, Lynn, do you have uh, do you have notes on that? You know, have you got all the notes and the times and when you did this and said all of this? For one, we're it's not up to us to take notes. Maybe you do scribble something down, but not like they're looking for. So Lynn, you know, she's a feisty little bugger. But anyway, she, she's sitting on the stand, and the whole 
courthouse, of course, is packed. And she she gets up, and, and she's sitting there, and she says, Well, look here. I'm a carried, and I get paid to wipe asses, not take notes. <laughs> and that's exactly what she said to them, eh? And the whole whole courtroom just burst out laughing and clapping, eh? And old uh, Opal, uh, order her, order. Nobody would listen to him. Aww. Sit down, Opal. We're going to have her. And they all were cheering away at her. But it, it, it shocked me when she said that, too. No. I'm paid a white, a- white bath and not take notes. That's your job. <laughs> the media really helped the phrase. While they were living through the beginning days when the bodies started to be found and through the court proceedings, the police and legal system continuously asked the victims' families not to talk about what was going on. This wasn't to protect the integrity of the case or the evidence needed to convict Picton. It was to protect themselves. Well, the phrase were very clear with all of them that these murders and what was happening within the investigation were not going to be kept secret and swept under the rug. The public deserved to know the truth. Canadians needed to know what was happening in our country. The deplorable truth about what happened on that farm To get the word out about the police not looking for all these women? The big media shows started to come to town to interview the phrase. This was an incredible story. Unbelievable as the story was, it was real. The police were very annoyed when Dateline and America's Most Wanted, to name a few, began to tell the story. Rick told me of when Dateline was at their house doing an interview and someone called to tell them to watch the news as there was breaking news on the case about Marnie. So there they all sat and waited for the news to come on. And the big announcement? Well, it was to say there was a suspect in the murders of all these many women that had disappeared. The suspect? Picton. Picton? Well, it wasn't breaking news, was it? Lynn had already been to the farm so many times looking for her daughter, looking for Marnie. She had told the police about the farm and how she thought he was involved in the murders. She named him. Years before. Many times. And Dateline? They had known from the phrase for many months, if not a year already, who the suspect was. That it was Picton. But no one was listening down there at the police station. What would you say to people that are listening? Do you have any sort of last kind of comment or words of encouragement or something well, towards sure, let's somebody? go back to Lynn when she's on the stand. Whenever you're talking to these guys, whenever you report anything, and, and I don't think it should be like this, but you have to make that paper trail. You have to write down everything. When you talk to this person, who it was, 
that 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 is extremely difficult and hard when you're going through a trauma mm -hmm. to do this. But these guys, they they're they're born and raised the the police. I mean, and and that they're they know how to give you a line of bullshit and get out of what they've done. Like how many times have we seen the police do something and you got three or four of them holding on and not uh, by, they're backing up the guy and saying, oh yeah, there was did this, did that. You know damn well they didn't. Right. So, you know, you have to make that, you have to write it all down and, and, uh, and have somebody there, a third person. It doesn't matter who it is. It could, and the best person I, I find would be a reporter. Because huh. they're certainly not going to let it go. Oh no! You know you you don't have to be uh, think that you're going to be out and having a big story in your name and in lights and that. That's not what I mean by have a reporter. A reporter is going to make sure the answers are going to be given and told truthfully. That's exactly right. It's got nothing to do with the story. It's got you. No, no, you can it, have, yeah. like you say, a reporter, but a reporter you trust, not just some like exactly. sleazy tabloid reporter. A reporter that yeah. is genuinely interested in the family and the cause and the case and the story yeah. and they're going to be there to make sure that people do not sweep things under the rug so that's great yeah. advice to it's been a our whole journey yeah. through this call it a journey call it whatever yeah it's been quite interesting quite you know very very stressful and very you know very emotional a lot yes. of the time i really hope that you will stop and think for a moment about Marnie. She was dismissed by the police, but not her family. She was always loved, and her family fought to find her, and fought to be sure that the police were held accountable for their actions, or lack thereof in this case. Think about your loved ones, and know that anyone at some point in their lives can fall on hard times go down a wrong path, become lost. Think about how much you love those around you and how devastated you would be if this were the case for you. If this was someone in your family. If this was someone you love. And let's not try to pass judgment on others so quickly. But instead, try to think about why they are struggling. Have compassion and understanding and love in your heart. Think about what got someone to that point in their lives and see if maybe you can help them or at least not judge them. And at the very least, don't give up on them. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate oh, you're very it. Welcome. Okay, okay, Rick, bye -bye. take care. Bye bye. bye. It is so nice to learn more about Marnie. Not the girl that was murdered, but just the girl. Her family is so lovely. So I can only imagine how lovely Marnie was as well. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, -face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one and let the world know how important they will be to you forever. 
these memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain, but surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs>